Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Matthew McManus. Dr. Matthew McManus is a lecturer at the University of Michigan and is the author of Emergence of Postmodernity. He's here to talk with us about his new book, uh, The Political Right and Equality, Turning Back the Tide of Egalitarian Modernity. Matthew, welcome to New Books Network. Yeah, thanks so much, Morteza. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, before we start the interview, can you please briefly introduce yourself and tell us about your expertise and also how the idea of this book came to you? Sure. Uh, well, like you mentioned, I'm a lecturer at the University of Michigan. Uh, I've written several books uh, about the political right before, uh, most notably my book from 2019, The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism, uh, and a little book I co-authored uh, with Ben Burgess, Marion Trejo, and Conrad Hamilton, uh, Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson, uh, which I believe we're going to be talking about at some later date. Um, and, you know, those are um, some of my contributions to this field before then. Uh, and the reason I chose to write this new book is a couple of people pointed out that while there are a lot of interesting critical things I pointed out in the rise of postmodern conservatism and that we pointed out in Myth and Mayhem, I didn't really spend enough time talking about why conservatives believed what they believe, what their arguments for their positions were. So this move book was really an attempt to answer that challenge by taking the political right on some terms. Mm. Um, so let's talk about some of the beliefs as you, and and uh, I'm glad that you mentioned some of the earlier books you mentioned. Uh, so we'll be, just for our listeners, we'll be talking to Matthew soon again about a couple of his other books. Uh, political right, uh, they always have this idea that uh, they're superior to other people and they are entitled to this power and wealth that they have. They have earned this power and the status they have. So where do you think that comes from? And could you explain uh, the, this this idea of them, this, this belief that they have about their superiority compared to other people? Yeah, not a problem. Uh, that's really the core uh, of what the book is about. So there are a lot of debates about what it means to be on the political right, just like there are a lot of debates about what it means to be on the political left, be a liberal. Uh, and my answer to this is that actually the right-wing liberal F.A. Hayek uh, had the right diagnosis, where he said that to be on the political right or to be a conservative, to use his jargon, uh, is to believe deep down that there are recognizably or demonstrably superior people in society. Uh, and these recognizably and demonstrably superior people are just entitled to more in very broad strokes, right? Uh, more power, more status, more affluence, more honors, you name it. Uh, now, who these recognizably superior people are in society really varies widely depending upon where you stand on the political right, your own traditions, your own convictions. Uh, and every conservative author that I talk about in my book, and some who are not conservative at all, they're conservative revolutionaries or radical writers, have their own answer to the question, what does it mean to be a recognizably superior person? Uh, but it's this core conviction that there are recognizably superior persons that makes one right wing. And uh, 
where 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 does the origin of this idea come from? Uh, there are there there are people who believe that political rights started or modern political rights started after the French Revolution. But in your book, you go way back. You talk about uh, the antecedents of this idea. You talk about uh, Aristotle. Aristotle. Can you talk about the origin of this? Of course, right. Uh, so the idea that people are morally equal uh, has relatively deep <clears throat> roots. Uh, you can find it, for instance, in Stoic thought. You can also find it certainly uh, in various forms of monotheistic thought, whether one talks about Judaism uh, or Christianity uh, or Islam. Uh, one could find an insistence on the equality of all humankind in Buddhism, right? Uh, but for many in antiquity, including Aristotle, uh, it was just a natural fact of life that some people are recognizably superior and that society should reflect this natural superiority or this recognizable superiority in its social structures. So earlier antiquarian societies, particularly in Europe, were predicated on what Charles Taylor calls a model of hierarchical complementarity. Uh, this idea, in essence, that society should be a pyramid. Uh, and just like a physical pyramid, uh, everybody in society, in the hierarchy, needs one another. Uh, it's not like the upper rungs of a pyramid can get by without the lower rungs of a pyramid. Uh, but that does not mean that everybody in the pyramid is entitled to equal dignity, equal status, equal power, and equal wealth, right? Uh, that's just something that figures like Aristotle, Plato, um, you name it, uh, Thucydides would reject emphatically. Uh, and it's only in the 17th and the 18th century uh, that a distinctly modern challenge to this idea first began to advance in the writings of various liberals, Republicans, uh, and eventually in um, the apocal works of various socialist authors starting in the 19th century. Uh, what about uh, Hegel? I'm really keen to know about this philosopher myself. Does he more lean towards uh, conservatism or liberalism? Where does he fall in this uh, continuum? Yeah, well, no, I mean, you and everybody uh, would like to know that. So uh, Hegel's a figure that occupies a significant place in the center of my book. Uh, and I open my discussion with him by saying that even putting Hegel in a book about the political right will piss off a lot of friends of mine, because uh, a lot of, you know, my Marxist friends, left Hegelian friends, uh, we'll say, no, 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 you know, Hegel is absolutely radical, revolutionary. Uh, he toasted the French Revolution until his dying days. Uh, and if you read his books carefully, uh, they're all about the need to reform and even completely transform society. Uh, now, I don't deny any of that. Uh, I'm actually fairly agnostic, at least for the purposes of this book, about what Hegel actually believed. Uh, my purpose in this text is to talk about the conservative elements that people read into Hegel uh, or discern in Hegel. Uh, and this is an important task because there is a very rich uh, and complex tradition of what's sometimes called the right Hegelianism uh, that has persisted from the 19th century downwards to the present day. Uh, and I talk about a number of the authors that fall into this paradigm, people like Francis Fukuyama, Roger Scruton, uh, Paul Gottfried on the radical right. Uh, and basically what they all insist is that Hegel offers a description of society uh, that, again, is hierarchical uh, and that suggests how one's freedom is best achieved by submitting uh, to hierarchies that have established and reified themselves effectively over history. Uh, now, none of these authors deny that there will be changes within society. You know, they're Hegelian enough to accept that there's this dialectical movement of history that's going to entail certain kinds of transition. Uh, but any transitions that occur 
are stabilizing transitions. Uh, they're meant to reinforce the structure that already exists uh, by reaffirming what it fundamentally is. Uh, and, you know, so Roger Scruton will say, in the 18th century, the United Kingdom uh, was a monarchical society. Uh, and we still have a monarchy today, and that's something that we should retain because uh, it links us in continuity with the past. Even if now in the 21st century, uh, we will flourish monarchical societies or even tinker with them by introducing considerable parliamentary uh, and democratic elements into them, along with healthy injections of liberalism. So this right Hegelian tradition, uh, very influential. Uh, I fundamentally believe that they misconstrued what Hegel is about because I personally am an adherent of the view that Hegel is fundamentally a radical thinker, uh, but one should never underestimate the influence that he's had on generations of right-wing thinkers and philosophers. Uh, I remember it was a few years ago, one of my friends was in my place and he went through my library and he jokingly said, uh, be careful, Mortez, I might turn into a conservative soon. So why? He said, look at all those Russian novels. And it was particularly pointing to Dostoevsky. I have his novels on my bookshelf. And it's quite amazing that you in your book talk about this figure. That's a figure that uh, fewer people might associate with. Uh, political right-wing thoughts. So um, I'm really keen, and I'm sure our listeners are keen to know more why you place a, a, a Russian novelist among uh, the figures you talk about in your book. Yeah, I mean, that's also a great question. Part of the reason, again, is just that Dostoevsky has had a truly profound influence uh, on the political right, uh, including some authors present and past that are exceedingly well known. Uh, you can think about somebody like, say, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, right, uh, who insisted that Dostoevsky was the only psychologist from some, from which he had anything to learn. Uh, or you can think about somebody today like Jordan Peterson, right, uh, who's often said that Dostoevsky is his favorite novelist and consistently refers to his novels uh, when chastising uh, the left or whatever he calls him now, you know, postmodern neo-Marxist or meta-Marxist or whatever it happens to be. Uh, but the reason I included him in the book isn't just because of his influence. Uh, it's because there is absolutely a politics that saturates uh, Dostoevsky's novels. And it's fundamentally a conservative politics. Uh, now, in The Political Right and Equality, uh, I insist that Dostoevsky, along with Nietzsche, uh, represents the very pinnacle uh, of right-wing thought in terms of the depth of his analysis, the profundity of his critique, uh, and of course, just the literary beauty uh, of his style, uh, which isn't to say I agree with him because you know I'm a democratic socialist and I fundamentally disagree with Dostoevsky, uh, but any leftist worth his salt uh, will at some point or another have to confront the politics uh, that is presented in the great novels of Dostoevsky's maturity, think through them carefully and try to find out how to respond to them effectively. Uh, now I respond to them, for instance, by appealing to another great Russian novelist, Leo Tolstoy, right? Uh, who some of your missilers might know, uh, was very much a progressive radical, certainly by the end of his life, uh, and would go on to have a profound influence, uh, not just on socialist movements, but also on a variety of anti-colonial uh, and civil rights rights movements, you know, Alec Gandhi uh, and Martin Luther King. Uh, so that's how I respond to Dostoevsky. But each radical uh, is going to need to think through the question of how to answer his challenge on their own. And uh, this is well, one of the sections in the book. Uh, it's the association between capitalism and social conservatism in your discussion of American right. How, how did this fusion of the two come about? Yeah, that's a very complicated question. Uh, and it's one that I devote a considerable amount of time to uh, in the book. So 
this might actually uh, it might actually be helpful to go back to talking about Dostoevsky uh, for mm. a second, right? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that's characteristic about Dostoevsky uh, is Dostoevsky, for the most part, is an emphatic critic uh, of modernity in all of its facets. Uh, he sees it as a corrupting influence, uh, particularly within Russian society. Uh, and again, all the great novels of his maturity take very seriously uh, the arguments of modernity and the psychology of modernity, uh, but ultimately insist uh, that returning to something that looks an awful lot like conservative Christian orthodoxy is what is going to be more psychologically uh, amenable for most people uh, and ultimately more psychologically amenable for the very lower orders uh, that liberals and socialists in Russia were proclaiming they were going to liberate. Uh, the United States is quite a different country, though. Uh, the United States is a country that, from its founding, uh, was saturated uh, with the language, the optimism, uh, and even the sense of destiny that one associates with modernity, right? Uh, and of course, you know, uh, you can see this even in his founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, uh, the American Constitution, uh, all of them have very distinct liberal and liberal capitalist connotations to it. Uh, so one of the reasons why American conservatism has a certain capitalist and even a certain liberal flavor uh, is just that the traditions and the history are very different in this country uh, than they are in Russia or France or some of the other places uh, that I survey. So that's one reason. The second reason, though, is more contemporary. Um, so what I point out in my book is that in the 1950s, uh, many American conservatives really saw themselves as the losers of history. Uh, and it's not an exaggeration to say that. If you read Russell Kirk's book, The Conservative Mind, uh, which is kind of a classic of mid-century conservatism, uh, Russell Kirk, you know, the American that he is, says, conservatives are the party of losers in that they've lost every major battle they fought against the left uh, since the French Revolution. Uh, quite striking. Uh, and then he's kind of offering this genealogy of conservative thought, saying we need to get things back on track. Uh, now, this might seem shocking in 2021 when you think about the influence conservatism and the right has around the globe. But let's think about this in context, right? Uh, in the 1950s, when Russell Kirk was writing, uh, communism was on the rise. Most of the counter-revolutionary forces in Europe uh, embodied, for instance, in fascism or uh, conservative authoritarianism had been completely routed uh, during the Second World War uh, or profoundly marginalized uh, as a result of the discrediting of those ways of life. Uh, and in the United States, even, uh, what you saw was a real advance, uh, both on the part of social liberalism uh, and economic uh, progressivism under the auspices of things like FDR's New Deal uh, or the American Civil Rights Movement, uh, which were you know, blossoming uh, in the 1950s. Uh, so, what you see people like Les Kirk, but people like William F. Buckley and Frank Meyer do uh, is saying these the advance of liberalism in the United States, progressive liberalism at the very least, uh, is a tremendous threat both to social conservatives and to capital um, under the auspices of the New Deal. So what we need to do is enact a fusion uh, between social conservatism, particularly of a religious sort, uh, and this support for markets uh, that is so integral, they thought, at least uh, to the American way of life. Uh, and this fusion turns out to be 
quite ideologically effective and serves the conservative movement in the United States very well, at least up until the contemporary era. Uh, it loses its first election in 1964 uh, when they set up uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, uh, excuse me, when they set uh, Barry Goldwater up against uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. Um, but then by the time Nixon comes around in 1968, uh, they win a marginal victory, get their guy in the president. Uh, and then, of course, by the 1980s, with the election of Ronald Reagan, uh, this fusionist synthesis really becomes ideologically hegemonic uh, in terms of shifting the overtime window away from the progressive liberalism of FDR and Martin Luther King uh, and towards the neoliberalism and neoconservatism of people like uh, Ronald Reagan and ultimately George W. Bush. Um, another question I have is about some maybe making a distinction. A lot of people talk about right um, as if it's just one uh, let's say one entity, one with one specific, with clearly defined boundaries. It's the same way they talk about the left, but there are still again. It's like a continuum. So how do you make a distinction between right and the far right? Sure, absolutely. So the far right or the radical right or the hard right. Uh, these are all different names for something that's very ambiguous, uh, is quite distinct uh, from conservatism, right? Uh, and it's really important to stress this because at times uh, this distinction isn't analytically clarified enough. So generally speaking, conservatives are just what the name suggests, right? They want to conserve. Uh, and that's usually because they see the existent order of things uh, as being more or less to their benefit and more or less operating the way they should. Uh, and their goal consequently is to inhibit reforms, particularly egalitarian and democratic reforms that they feel would be disruptive uh, of the social order as it stands right now. Uh, what conservatives wanna do is what William F. Buckley said they should do, uh, which is to stand athwart history and yell stop. The far right or the radical right is not like that. Uh, far right authors typically will say things like Glenn Elmer said uh, in his little essay for the American conservative uh, called Conservatism is No Longer Enough, uh, where Elmer says, listen, uh, this country has gone down the toilet. Uh, liberalism, progressivism, they're ascendant absolutely everywhere. Uh, so there's nothing left to conserve, right? Uh, what we need to do right now is to stage a counter-revolution, uh, or we need to completely upend the status quo and replace what seems to be a decayed and overly progressive society with something that is very different uh, from what we have right now. And that's not a conservative instinct, right? That's a transformative instinct. Uh, and the radical right is very internally diverse uh, in the sense that different radical right and hard right authors have extremely different utopian, and I stress that word utopian visions, uh, for the society they want to see replace uh, the so-called decayed social order that they find so repellent. Uh, but all of them have this kind of counter-revolutionary or revolutionary impetus behind their thinking. How about uh, Nietzsche? He's, a, he's, he's usually called the rightly or wrongly called the philosopher of the right. So how do you situate him in this tradition? Well, I very clearly situate Nietzsche uh, on the political right. In fact, again, I say that along with Dostoevsky, he represents one of the great peaks uh, of right-wing thought. Uh, and for that matter, he is probably the most pronounced enemy uh, of the left. Uh, and I should say, uh, I'm certainly not alone in this view. Uh, people like Domenico Rosurdo, the great Marxist scholar, uh, or Ronald Beener, who wrote the introduction of the book, uh, all have written fantastic things uh, talking about Nietzsche's rightism. Uh, but putting it very simply, right, uh, Nietzsche is committed to this idea that 
the slave morality uh, that emerges with Christianity uh, has become secularized and transmuted into modern egalitarian doctrines like liberalism, like socialism, like democracy. All of these have become ubiquitous uh, in the sense of spreading all around the globe, and they are responsible for the sense of nihilism, uh, or at least in many ways responsible for the sense of nihilism that Nietzsche now sees as pervading Western culture. Uh, now, there are a lot of different reasons for this in his thinking. We don't have time to get into all of them. Uh, but his conviction is fundamentally that any kind of egalitarian morality or value system uh, that instantiates itself the way that he saw liberalism, socialism, and democracy is instantiated in themselves is going to lead to the decay or the decline of culture. Because in Beyond Good and Evil, he says, the only kind of cultures that have ever produced anything meaningful are aristocratic cultures, even militantly aristocratic cultures, uh, because aristocratic cultures are those in which the higher kind of men or the recognizably superior kind of men are able to cultivate their abilities to the umpteenth degree uh, without the kind of inhibitions of guilt uh, or restrictions of political correctness, let's use the modern term, uh, that decadent societies would want to impose upon them. And so Nietzsche calls for a great politics uh, that he thinks can only be achieved by what he calls aristocratic radicalism or what's called aristocratic radicalism uh, by a fan of his. Uh, and Nietzsche just emphasizes this need for aristocracy consistently all throughout his late period. Uh, probably the most emblematic place is in the will to power, uh, where he even rejects the idea that his value system, uh, if you want to call it that, uh, is an individualistic value system, as it's often been understood. Uh, he says, I am not an individualist. I believe in rank ordering. That's what my philosophy is concerned with, uh, because individualism believes that every individual is entitled to the same kinds of freedoms and the same kinds of opportunities. So it has this egalitarian quality. Uh, Nietzsche says some people should have the freedom to exercise their most expansive kinds of powers. Uh, in fact, they should have extraordinary freedoms uh, to do that, that even liberal society wouldn't permit them. Uh, they should be allowed to enslave, use violence, do whatever is necessary. Uh, but that's the higher order of people who should be entitled to this freedom. Uh, the mass or the herd, uh, they are fit only for servitude and indeed, again, uh, even for slavery, according to Nietzsche. Mm. And another uh, term that is really difficult to define is liberalism, because it's sometimes in... Uh, political discourse is sometimes conflated with the idea of conservatism as well. Uh, so why is that? And and in general, do you think liberalism is in crisis today? I guess there are two questions here that I have. Absolutely. Now, I identify as a liberal socialist. Uh, so I have a lot of positive things to say about liberalism, but I also have a lot of critical things to say about right-wing liberalism and certainly about neoliberalism. Uh, so your question goes well beyond uh, what my book is about. Um, and I'm writing a new book right now, I should add, called The Political Theory of Liberal Socialism that tackles these questions a lot more directly, uh, but briefly, right? Uh, much like the conservative tradition is very internally diverse, it's important to stress that liberalism is very internally diverse and it has more left-wing and more right-wing elements to it. Uh, so right-wing liberals, uh, like F.A. Hayek, for example, tend to share the conviction of their left-wing counterparts that all people are morally equal, that there aren't uh, recognizably superior persons within society. Uh, but Hayek will insist that 
even though there aren't necessarily recognizably superior persons in society and all people need to be equal before the law, uh, we need to accept a high level of material and even political inequality within society uh, for a variety of different reasons related to the need to maximize utility uh, and, of course, to from his perspective, to maximize freedom. Uh, Left-wing liberals or liberal socialists like myself don't believe the same kinds of things uh, as right-wing liberals do. We think that it's absolutely necessary for society to secure a very expansive um, a very expansive set of social institutions which will enable the flourishing of all. Uh, and we also believe that we have social obligations, particularly to the least well-off uh, in our society. Uh, and indeed, many left-wing liberals and especially liberal socialists will say it makes no sense to talk about utilitarianism uh, because our goal shouldn't be securing the utility maximization of people who are already doing fine before we try to secure the utility maximization of those in our society who are not doing fine, who really desperately need help. Uh, and again, this is a nice Rawlsian idea of prioritizing the least well off. Uh, and there are rooms, there's a lot of room for debate uh, within the liberal tradition about which of these viewpoints is more consistent uh, with basic liberal principles of being committed to freedom for all and equality for all. Uh, but I certainly know where I stand, and it's on the very, very left end uh, of the liberal spectrum with liberal socialists like John Stuart Mills, uh, Chantal Mouffe, uh, and to a certain degree, John Rawls. And I think you recently, just a few days ago, you published, or maybe a month ago, you published an article in, on Jacobian about John Rawls. Am I right? Uh, yeah, it was just this uh, Wednesday, actually. It was a oh, review yeah. of... Um, his latest, uh, a very interesting new collection uh, by Paul Weichmann, uh, Theory of Justice at 50. Uh, and what this collection does, amongst other things, uh, is reiterate the centrality of concerns, uh, sorry, the centrality of equality to Rawls's thinking, uh, and in particular, its radicalness in many respects. So Rawls is often misconstrued as a defender of a kind of moderate welfare state of the sort that you'd find in the United States in, say, the 1950s during the Eisenhower administration, uh, or, you know, even uh, maybe a more expansive welfare state of the sort that you'd see in the Western European uh, social democracies. Uh, actually, if you read Rawls's work carefully, particularly his late works like Justice and Fairness, uh, he is emphatic and explicit about the fact that uh, welfareism is not going to cut it because welfareism permits too many inequalities uh, that are not conducive to the welfare of the least well off. Uh, and it also treats political citizens uh, unequally by ensuring that the wealthy, for instance, have considerably more power than their less wealthy counterparts, particularly political power. Uh, and in his book, Justice and Fairness, Rawls says that uh, to be a liberal means to be committed ultimately to what he called property-only democracy, uh, which would mean more or less equal property uh, across society, uh, or to liberal socialism, uh, as he called it. Uh, and I myself identify with the liberal socialist porn uh, of that approach. And and uh, you, you just mentioned that you're working on a new book. I'm keen to know more about the book and when it comes out. Uh, sure. So my new book is also for Rutledge. Um, it's the political theory of liberal socialism. Uh, and I'm submitting it in May 2024, so I'm guessing it'll probably be out maybe around this time next year. Uh, but the political theory of liberal socialism traces the genealogy uh, of liberal socialism from figures like Thomas Paine and Mary Wilsoncraft, who are precursors, uh, through John Stuart Mill. Uh, many of your listeners might not know, but John Stuart Mill, famous liberal author of On Liberty, 
uh, actually declared himself a socialist in his autobiography and wrote some very interesting things about the need to expropriate uh, the capitalist class and transition to workplace democracy uh, in his principles of political economy, especially the latest editions uh, and his chapters on socialism. Then we went through people like um, the ethical socialists in uh, the United Kingdom, uh, and various Christian socialist movements uh, before we come to the present day where we talk about people like John Rawls, Chantal Mouffe, uh, Charles Mills, who famously identified as a radical liberal, liberal uh, and a few others. Uh, so I'm very uh, excited about this book. I um, think it'll actually you know, help clarify a lot of things for people who are interested in what it means to be on the left end of the spectrum, but to still hold to certain foundational liberal convictions. Uh, and I'm hopeful uh, that people will enjoy it when it comes out. Thank you very much, uh, Matthew. Really enjoyed this conversation. And for our listeners, uh, we're going to be talking to Matthew soon again about a couple of other books. Thank you so much, Morteza. Yeah, it was a fantastic conversation. And uh, yeah, if people want, they can just uh, add me on Twitter at Matt Prolfroth. Uh, and my book, again, is The Political Right and Equality, uh, Turning Back the Tide of Egalitarian Modernity for Rutledge. They can uh, find it uh, on the Rutledge website, or they can probably order it on Amazon. Uh, although it's a little pricey, so try to get it on sale if you can. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>